Amen, and thank you, Matt, up on the third floor, and to Mike, who was earlier on the first floor. I'm Eric Barton. I'm here on the second floor, and I want to add my welcome and greeting to all of you that have joined and those of you who are watching remotely online from wherever you might be. It is great to be together in church, and we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Now, those of you who know me at all, you know that probably my top five songwriters all go by the name Matt McGill. But right after Matt McGill, I have a long history loving the songs of a guy named Rich Mullins. Always loved his lyrics, his songwriting. A little bit of a hippie for some people, but I totally, totally have always loved his music. One of my favorite songs of his is called We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. And I want us to hear these words as a preparation and an introduction to what we're going to study this morning in the book of Ephesians, finishing up our series in chapter 6. This is the song, just the first couple paragraphs, we are not as strong as we think we are. He says, well, it took the hand of God Almighty to part the waters of the sea, but it only took one little lie to separate you and me. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. And they say that one day Joshua made the sun stand still in the sky. But I can't even keep these thoughts of you from passing by. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are frail. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these, our hells and our heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. I think Rich was on to something here. I think sometimes the hardest thing in the universe seems to be for people, even or perhaps even especially Christian people, to get along. And so what if I told you that that precisely is spiritual warfare? Well, there's all kinds of other things that are going on, yes, and we can talk about those, but really principally, what all of us encounter and engage in more often than not in the context of spiritual warfare happens to do with horizontal conflict and confrontation. In fact, as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians this whole calendar year, we've talked about over and over again how the church gathered together is a testimony, a proclamation, and a witness of the gospel and the power of the gospel, that when we gather together, we are actually engaged in spiritual warfare. Because what we say all the time is the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and almost equally important to one another. So this morning, we're going to talk about the end of this passage in Ephesians. And we need to remember that Satan has lost the war. It's over. And yet, he continues to fight battle after battle. And since he cannot inflict any damage whatsoever on God in any way, in any direct assault, he turns his attention and all of his vim and vigor towards us, to the bride and the body of Christ. And his tactics are as old as warfare itself, divide and conquer. But we have been given the ultimate defense, if I may borrow from another author, the ultimate defense against the dark arts. It's the responsibility of every Christian to be fully equipped and educated. And so that's going to be our big idea for this morning as we finish up the series. It goes like this. Put on Christ. That's Paul's concluding emphasis, his exhortation, and his imperative. Put 
on Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, let me invite you now to go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 10, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. We'll unpack it, and then we'll see how we can apply this. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. The apostle writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Some of you who are old enough just went full Frank Peretti right there. I know who you are. And then there's the rest of us. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is God's word. Now, I need to say at the outset that I have borrowed shamelessly and unapologetically from so many uh, other scholars, writers, preachers, academics that it would be uh, too much time to sort of cite all these. Let me just say, I'm so thankful for guys like Harold Honer, who was one of my professors in seminary that has written like the great commentary on the book of Ephesians. I ripped him off unapologetically. It is a full-on plagiarism casserole, and I'm not even ashamed of that in the slightest. Other guys like N.T. Wright and Tim Keller, on and on and on that I have just loved learning from them and being blessed by them. So I'm going to put all this stuff together and we're going to walk through this passage together. And I want to draw your attention. As we are here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, please notice one of my most brilliant insights that you're going to get all year long is that verse 10 comes immediately after verse 9. It's true. It's not like Paul starts a brand new epistle. It's not like he even starts a brand new chapter. Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. We added that about 500 years ago. This is a continuation of what he's been writing all through Ephesians thus far. This is our 15th week together in the book of Ephesians. He's just finished telling us about this household code where all of the relationships in the spiritual and societal sense are played out. We have marriage, we have parenting, we have the household economy of master and slave. That was the building block of the social fabric of the day in which Paul wrote. Now, he's just finished that off, and he launches into this thing about spiritual warfare. Most of us pivot there, and we go, well, it's been a few nights that I've slept since the last time we talked about the household code. Paul's now probably talking about 80s grunge metal hairbands. And like, no, 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 no. We're coming right out of this section of how people treat one another. 
Now, that's super instructive. We have to understand that we've just come out of the household code, and Paul says, finally. Now, this is the one time where Paul says, finally, that he means finally. Most of the time, because Paul's a preacher, he says, finally, and then he's not even halfway done. This time, he actually means finally. He's drawing to a close here. He says, finally. And then most of your translations are going to say something like this, be strong, which I get what we're trying to do in these translations, not helpful. Like most of Paul's imperative exhortations, it is a middle passive verb. It is be strengthened. It's not up to you. You and I have literally zero strength of our own to do any of the things that are required of us to wage war against the spiritual forces that Paul mentions. So when an imperative gets translated, be strong, it's not super helpful because well, I can't, and I'm not, and neither can you. Don't sit there looking so pious. We can't be strong. We have no strength in which to be strong. And so the, the exhortation is just like what he's given us in chapter 5, verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. It's not something you go and do. You actively and intentionally receive. The Spirit of God is desirous of filling you, and God himself desires to strengthen you. So that means stop trying in your own efforts. The greatest golf instruction of all time, try hard not to try hard. Be strengthened, actively and intentionally receive and believe what God is doing in your life. Be strong in the Lord. Not with all of your cute little Instagram quiet times with all your highlighters and your chai. No, 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 no. Be strong in the Lord. Remember Ephesians, in Christ is the theme. 27 times we are told we have union with Christ and position in Christ. Be strengthened in the Lord. He is the position of our strength. He's also the source of our strength. And then Paul does something really interesting here in this opening verse. He seems to say something that's a little bit redundant or that he repeats himself or that he says the same thing twice. Or maybe he's just using synonyms because it's fun. Or maybe he's just adding some emphasis. Oh, no. He's doing theology. Paul's doing Christology. He's writing to these people in Ephesus, and he says, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Isn't that just the same thing twice? No, 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 no. Two different words entirely. One is just the person of Christ himself. Be strengthened in Christ, in his power. And it's the idea of his Old Testament Krator, the the authority and the power with which he actually created with a word. It's the same word that, that God actually raised Christ from the dead. That same resurrection power is available to us and his might and just all of his personal strength and resources. We are to be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now that might seem like overkill until you hear what we're up against. And you realize that we need every single bit of that. Be strong or be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. It's one of Paul's favorite imperatives. One of his favorite instructions is to put on, put on, to to be immersed in, to be completely wrapped up and enveloped in the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of God of the devil. Now, we're going to talk a whole lot more about what these schemes are, what that means, but principally, I want to remind you that for the Apostle Paul and all of the writers of Scripture, the devil exists. He's a personal force. He's not an idea. He's not just some construct of society. He is an actual living being with a will and a desire 
to destroy. He's called all different things all throughout your Bible. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. But he exists. He's real. He's not merely some notion or some idea so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. This word schemes is uh, where we get our word for methods, methodia. It's his, his plans, his wiles, his cunning tactics and, uh, and battle operations against us. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, what's interesting is that I think Paul's very subtly referring here to way back in the Old Testament in the book of Samuel when young shepherd boy David tries to put on the armor of King Saul and he looks like a clown and it doesn't fit and he's, he's too small. It doesn't work for him. And if he went into battle that way, he would have been killed. But this armor, first of all, it's God's armor. It's not ours. Be super clear on that. You and I have zero strength to fight on our own. Put on the armor of God. It's his. And shockingly and amazingly, you would think that if King Saul's armor is too big for David, well, God's armor is going to be like a billion, billion times too big for us. No, 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 no. It fits perfectly because it's Jesus. Now, we're going to see this unpacked here in just a moment, but the armor of God is Jesus himself. Put it on so that we can stand not charge the gates of hell with a water pistol, for those of you who are a little bit aggressive and cowboy in your spirituality. No, we also don't turn and run. We are always and only called to stand. We hold the line. We stand fast. Remember that when Paul's writing this, he's in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. Both he and the soldier knew what the responsibilities of a soldier were. You stand there. You hold the line. You lock shield with your other soldier companions. And your strength is how you do so together. You stand because there is an assault aimed at you at all times. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Four, we do not wrestle. See, this is also not a great translation. It should be wrestle. Sometimes you might even have the word in there, struggle. This is not battling with weaponry. This is wrestle or wrestle. It's the very specific technical term that has to do with hand-to-hand -hand combat in warfare. When you're out of weapons, you're out of strategy, it's just you and your nails and teeth. That's how near and proximate it is, this struggle, this wrestling that we're in. And this is what Paul says. It's really fascinating. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And many, many, many people for the centuries have taken that verse and misinterpreted it to mean that Paul's saying we don't have any material issue, no physical struggle whatsoever. That is not what Paul is saying. Of course we face physical and material opposition and oppression all the time. Paul had been betrayed. He'd been stoned and flogged and beaten with rods. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been betrayed, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned in the material realm. What he's saying is, this is massive, and we have to hear this in the 21st century, is that, yes, we experience blood and flesh and material and physical oppression and opposition, but there's a thing under the thing. It's not that it's just in the spiritual realm. It's primarily and ultimately in the spiritual realm, but it does exist in the physical realm as well. We cannot discount that. Now, that's really remarkable because in our age, in the 21st century, we have, oh, what's that word? Evolved. Where we like to say things like there's no actual evil in the world. There's just a whole bunch of people who have gone off course. Something's gone wrong with their education. Something's gone wrong with their upbringing, with their nurture. Something's gone wrong. And so we don't even like to use words like evil. 
We use medical terminology instead. We say things like, oh, uh, the dysfunction and, and the pathology. No, she's just evil, man. She's just evil. There's a thing that's gone terribly wrong. She's fallen and flawed. Notice I'm saying she. Well, he is too. We don't even like to use those things because we tend to think if it's just social ills that we can discover and discern, then we can also defeat it. See also the world in which you now live. All these programs, policies, procedures, all of these uh, attempts to societally solve all the dysfunctions and pathologies are because there is a steadfast refusal to accept and understand that there is actually a spiritual evil at work beneath the surface. And we're never going to fully get along and understand and love one another by program or procedure or even education and economy. It's never going to solve it because we have a real enemy with limitless resources and minions who are coming at us because he's lost. But in the time that he has left, he's going to, listen, fight like hell because that's who he is and that's what he does. It's also interesting that Paul calls him the devil. Could have used a whole bunch of different words. Could have said the adversary. Could have called him Satan. He could have called him the enemy. He says devil. Because that word specifically means something. It's diabolo. It's to shoot through you. That's what devil means, to shoot through you. And his primary ammunition is lies and deceit. That's how he shoots through you, is by slander, by lies, by deceits. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. He says... We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Why doesn't Paul just say demons, you know, the wicked angels? Because he's trying to make a big deal about what a big deal these beings are and that they exist. We've already heard from these folks in chapter 1. We've already heard about them in chapter 3 where the manifold wisdom of God is using the church to demonstrate. The church is the trophy case, the demonstration of God's manifold wisdom in the heavenly realms. And so they hate the trophy case. They hate the demonstration and the presentation of the manifold wisdom of God. And so the church becomes their primary point of attack. This present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the fifth time Paul will say the heavenly places, the heavenly realm, the fifth time he has said it in the book of Ephesians. Now, praise God, he started off by saying, we have been seated with Christ already in the heavenly places. That's the super reality. That's the ultra reality is that we have been seated with him already. That's our position. Verse 13, he picks up again. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God. See, he's going to get right back there. you got to remember, this, this group of people in Ephesus, but not just in Ephesus, the, the surrounding churches of the Lycus River Valley of Hierapolis and Colossae and Laodicea, this is like the black magic, witchcraft, and occult capital of the world at this time. I mean, you might remember from our study of Acts 19 how much craziness is going on in Ephesus in Acts 19. Remember the the seven sons of Sceva who get whipped naked by one demon? Now, we call that spiritual warfare. When you get whipped naked by a single demon, you and your six brothers, that's a bad afternoon. That's bad on your Instagram. There's the the Jewish synagogue that was full of Ephesia Grammata, these little incantations and spells. Even the Jewish people of the day were practicing magic and spells. There was the silversmiths that were making little statues and shrines and all these little amulets and, and jewelry, all invoking the temple at Artemis. It was a very real and present darkness to the people in Ephesus. And I'm sure all these new Christians are going, hey, what are we supposed to do? 
All of our former friends, even some of our family, they still use their little Ephesian shrines and amulets and their little trinkets and their bracelets and all these things. We have nothing. What are are we going to do, Paul? How are we going to fight all this stuff? Paul says, oh, twice, put on the armor of God. Take up and wrap yourself, not with a little trinket around your wrist or your ankle, the full armor of God. Verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, a lot of folks have wondered, okay, so is this talking about like one day in the far off future, like the great tribulation or something like that? No, we've already heard from chapter five, verse 16, that the days are evil. The time has a default depravity. It is fallen. It works against us. We have to be active and intentional and volitional to redeem the time, to buy back the time from its default fallenness. The day is evil. If we just go on autopilot, we fly our souls right into the side of a mountain. That's a bad strategy. Autopilot never works in the spiritual places. And having done all to stand firm. That's always going to be his exhortation. You stand. We see it in the book of James. We see it in Hebrews. We see it in Peter. You stand. Verse 14. Stand therefore. Because it's almost like Paul wants us to understand we're supposed to stand. Stand therefore. And now we're going to get all these little ingredients to the armor of God. Now, Each one of these, of course, could be its own little sermon, and we could spend a long time talking about each one of them, but I don't want to, because that's really kind of not the point. They're really, really cool. But what I want you to see is that every piece of the armor is actually Jesus. Not only that, what Paul's doing here, because in his mind is unquestionably Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah talks about the coming kingdom where the lion will lay down with the lamb and all these things will be amazing and the Messiah will come and the Messiah will have a helmet of this and a breastplate of this and a belt of this and a sword and a shield. It's all Messiah language. Paul borrows that and says, you guys, you guys, you guys. What's gonna be true of Messiah when he returns is available and accessible to you now. Don't you know who you are? But you have a responsibility to put it on actively, intentionally, moment by moment, step by step, thought by thought, interaction by engagement. You have to put that on. Trinkets from Ephesus? Oh, please. I'm talking about you put on Christ. He is the armor of God. That's now he walks through these things. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And you kind of have to imagine as Paul is dictating this, because Paul's vision was about 20, 18,000. He, he, he couldn't see it all, so he's dictating every, almost everything that he writes. And the soldier's hearing this going, this guy gets it. This guy understands warfare. Who is this little Jewish person who knows war better than I do? Stand, he says, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. This is the, the under, the fastener that holds it all together. All the other pieces attached to and hang off of the belt of truth. It's true because it's true. It's not true just because it works. It's true because it is the truth and everything else hangs off this. What you claim, Christian, that Jesus is alive is the underpinnings of everything else in your life. He is alive. That's the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is not just goodness, purity, morality, behavior, appropriateness. No, 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 no. This is the fact that God has already started his campaign of setting things to right. 
It's the whole book of Romans. He's already rolling forward his justice. And you and I are the walking around righteous ones called the saints, the holy ones of God. And we have to be reminded of that. That is the breastplate that prevents us from getting shot in the heart with lies and deceit because it's coming. God's already rolling forth his righteousness and it looks like each and every one of you. Keep that breastplate of righteousness on you. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Often misapplied, this is not actually about evangelism, although evangelism is good, you should totally do that. This is again about standing, solid footing so that you can stand when all the other ground seems to be falling away. This is so that you will have peace and not be rocked by whatever wave comes at you. Verse 16, in all circumstances, what does that leave out? Well, Thursdays. No! In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. This is our confession, the content of what we believe. Principally, primarily, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he lived, he died, and that he is alive. If you can't remember anything else in spiritual warfare, Jesus is alive. And that'll take you pretty far. You stand there with that. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We'll talk more about those in just a moment. And take the helmet of salvation, that which protects and preserves the center of your thinking and your feeling. Oh, wait, I am saved. I have life everlasting. You wear that at all times. A soldier would not want to wear his helmet because it was hot and it was uncomfortable. But the helmet of salvation is light and fresh and it gives life. It is who I am. Saved in Christ. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the only portion of the armor of God that is offense. Everything else is defense. Now, what's interesting here, when Paul says the Word of God, he doesn't mean the logos. He doesn't mean the entirety of Scripture, although we would like for it to say that. It's the rhema. It is the spoken, preached, confessed truth of who God is, what God has done. That stuff is to ring around in our hearts and our minds so that when the enemy comes at us as individuals or as families or as communities or as churches, we speak the word of God back. As Luther would say, what of it, you devil? I am worse than you think, but I am loved more than you know. That is the word of God. That's what it says. Verse 18, after all this, and yes, you'll notice that the armor there's nothing covering the back because we don't turn and run. We simply stand. Verse 18, praying at all times. How? In the spirit with all prayer and supplication or perhaps special request. I have found that when I become irritated with people, my tendency is to stay irritated and grow deeper in my irritation unless I pray for them. And it's amazing, the fondness, the affection, the attention, the warmth that just blossoms as the folks that used to irritate me, I just can't wait to see them and, 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 and hug them and tell them that I care about them, that they mean the world to me. With all prayer and supplication. To that end, he says, keep alert. Do not go on autopilot. This is one of those times he uses the word that Paul sort of makes up. Be vigilant, head on a swivel. Do not be asleep at your post. That's when you're vulnerable. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the people that you like and that can pay you back. No, that's a terrible translation. It doesn't say that. For all the saints, 
regardless of what they will do in return for you. That's how we are to stand. That's how we are to stand. Prayer is care. Well, I don't know how to pray. Take a pencil and your big chief tablet and just let the Lord bring faces and names to mind. Write their names down. And you will be shocked that the Spirit of God will begin to say, that guy, he's struggling. Just pray for him. Just pray for power. Pray for peace. Pay for strength. Pay for perseverance. And you'll just begin to do this. Just write it down. It does take some organization. Yes, you can do this while you're driving or doing whatever you want outside, but it does take some intentionality. And I promise, if and when you do this, you are waging war against all the forces of darkness that surround us. Making prayer and supplication for all the saints and also for me, Paul says, as he's sitting in Rome awaiting trial, waiting for the Jewish authorities to arrive from Jerusalem so that they can present their case against him and he will speak to Caesar, at this point, Nero. He knows he's gonna be defamed and, and lied about by the Jewish authorities when they show up. They never do. He's finally released after two years, but he also knows he's gonna be dealing with a crazy Caesar. So he's praying, I need your help to give utterance accurately, confidently, and with grace to communicate the gospel. Even Paul requests prayer so that I might open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. That's usually not how you want your ambassador chained up to a Roman soldier, but Paul says, oh no, this is how God gets it done, don't you see? And by the way, for your sake. Because remember, Paul is in prison because the Jews in Jerusalem thought that Paul had walked an Ephesian man named Trophimus across the threshold into the temple. He hadn't. But he says, I'm here because of you. Don't lose heart. This is how God fights and wins. I'm an ambassador, an emissary, an apostle, a sent one in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then he wraps up his letter to the Ephesians. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister. I love that for 2,000 years, this guy is referenced both here and in Colossians as a beloved brother and a faithful minister. You know what that means? Tychicus is your exhibit A of what it looks like to put on Christ. You know what it looks like to stand? Look at Tychicus. And by the way, that's leadership in a church. Someone who you go, that person, that man, that woman, that student has put on Christ. Tychicus is the one who is the example. It's not even Paul who gets to do this because he has poured into and loved and led and guided and guarded Tychicus. He gets to take this letter and comfort them and encourage them. He's a faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Why does he have to do that? Because Paul knows they are discouraged. Paul, ever the pastor, cares intensely for the courage, the confidence, and the well-being of these people, even though they're across the sea. Peace be to the brothers. Now, that's an interesting, interesting way to wrap up a little section on spiritual warfare because Paul knows spiritual warfare is not about demons and black candles and goat heads and pentagrams. Even Satan's embarrassed by that nonsense. No. Spiritual warfare is all about conflict and discord between the brothers. And so Paul's primary pastoral apostolic wish and hope and prayer is for them to have peace be to the brothers and love with faith. That's the construct. That's the, that's the, the sphere of our love of one another is what we believe because of all the things that God is and what he has done. 
from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the same affection and community and love that the Father has for the Son, that's the same sort of bond that we are to have with one another. We, we, we call that the church when it's working. And when it's not, it's because we have given up our alertness. Final benediction. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I love that Paul ends this little letter. He started in chapter 1, verse 2, with grace and peace. And the final thing is grace. And everything in between is how we are to live our lives. We love Christ with love incorruptible. Is that how you feel about how you love Jesus? Not so much me. But there are some things that are true regardless how I feel about them. In the heavenly places, my love of Jesus and his love of me is utterly incorruptible, undefilable. And that's very good news. So what do we do with this passage? How do we land this? How do we apply this and take it with us as we walk out of here? I'm going to give you four fairly quick implications on this. Four fairly quick implications as we surround ourselves with the person of Christ, as we put on Christ more specifically. Implication or application number one goes like this. Be strengthened. That's what Paul starts off by saying. Be strengthened. As Rich Mullen said, we are not as strong as we think we are, but he is so much stronger than we can ever imagine, and we have access to his person and to his resources, the strength of his might, and his desire is to strengthen his bride so that she's adequately prepared for his return. We're to actively and intentionally receive his strengthening, and so yes, we immerse ourselves in God's word. We pray as God's people and we worship together as God's people so that we can stand. Remember, the applicational hinge of the last three chapters of Ephesians is chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, which produces a whole lot of people that do everything that follows. This is what it means to be the church, to put on Christ. Second implication. Let me just get right in your kitchens and offend everybody. I look forward to seeing you back in about three or four weeks when you have forgotten this. People are not the problem. And of course they're the problem because sin is so pervasive. People are the carriers, the dispensers, the spreaders of sin. Sin's the problem. But let me be as clear and direct as I possibly can. People are not the problem. See, our world, our society, our culture are always working to convince us that this particular group or that particular group of people are the problem. And so we ratchet up our rhetoric and we divide further and further. Have you noticed maybe a little bit of divide in our culture and society? Perhaps we're going to take a little quick poll. Which news network do you watch? Don't raise your hands. And so we have this notion fed to us persistently by our culture and our society that says we will finally be able to agree with one another if we just solve these social problems. And that is a lie, quite literally, from the pit of hell. We will never be able to fully get along so long as we have an enemy who has aimed all of his forces directly at us. But what happens is people, not just people, but even Christians have a tendency to think thoughts like this. If those people or that person wasn't in the picture, everything would be better. You ever had that thought? Twice this morning? I know. You are being plucked by the enemy, you're experiencing lies and deceit. People are not the problem. Our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, principally. Ultimately, it is 
the lies and the deceits of our enemy, playing right into his schemes. Speaking of which, this concept of the schemes or the methods of the devil. Point number three goes like this. Understand the enemy's methods. Now, I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. We have to understand the enemy's methods. And I'm going to borrow, yet again, shamelessly, from a man named John White. He's a Christian counselor, written a book on spiritual warfare and the slings and arrows of the enemy, how it works in the life of a believer. He's very quick to point out, and I agree, and I affirm this, the devil doesn't take a good person and make that person bad. (laughs) That's not how it works, because there's no good people. No, not even one. Not it. The devil takes fallen and flawed people and makes them worse by playing on the struggles that they already have. And everybody's is different. He uses this illustration of a piano. If you open up a piano, there's all these strings. And if you hum just with your voice, the string that matches the note that you're humming will respond and begin to vibrate. And that's how you can know what what note you're actually singing. Whatever note you're doing, that string will respond and vibrate. And so that's what your enemy does. He opens your piano and he just starts to make sounds and he whispers to you in the heavenly places, not with audible voices, it's way worse. It's at the inner monologue, heart chatter level of your being and he just starts making these spiritual accusations and lies and the one that responds and vibrates, ah, got him. And he plucks it and he plucks it and he plucks it and he plucks it. And it changes over time. So you have to understand what this devil is capable of. Maybe for you in this season of life, it's lust. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's uh, falsehood. Maybe Who knows what it is? But he's got time. He will work and play you until the string responds, and then he will pluck, pluck, pluck. So how does he find the strings in our hearts to pluck? Well, he essentially slings two different categories of lies and deceits at our inner being that mix with our inner dialogue and heart chatter. I don't want to freak you out, but the thought life that you have, I'm not saying that he can read your mind. I'm just saying he's watching you. He doesn't have to read your mind. He just watches what you do. He sees what you see, and he plays you, and he persistently and relentlessly fires two categories of lies and deceits at us. The first is temptation. The second is accusation. They're equal and they're opposite, but they're very, very similar. Temptation works like this. He gives you a view of yourself that's too high Hmm. so that you justify and rationalize doing things that you shouldn't. In temptation, he hides God's holiness from you and how much God hates sin. See also Genesis 3. Did God really say that? Oh, come on, it'll be fine. He gives you too high a view of yourself. He whispers all the justifications and the rationalizations that convince us that we are entitled to do the thing that we shouldn't. Oh, come on, you work hard. Nobody appreciates you enough. You should X and Y and Z. And you go, you know what? I do work hard. Nobody appreciates me. I think I'll just X and Y and Z. That's what he does. It's never out loud. It's way worse. It happens in our inner dialogue and in our heart chatter. That's temptation. He elevates your view of yourself. And if that doesn't work, he'll pluck the black keys. He'll resort to accusation. In accusation, he gives you a view of yourself that's too low so that you justify and rationalize doing things that you shouldn't. He doesn't care how he gets you as long as he gets you. He hides God's love from you and reminds you only of God's wrath. Now, that's interesting. He causes us to focus more on our sin than our Savior. And he just nonstop berates us with accusation all the time, all the time. Our inner monologue starts to switch to the second person pronoun. 
Instead of saying, gosh, I can't believe I did that, you start actually hearing in your inner heart chatter, you're such a loser. You're such a loser. You did that. If you find yourself having inner monologue with second person pronoun, you're under accusation. Respond out loud if need be. This is a falsehood and a deceit. Rebuke it. You and I must simply grow to learn which techniques are effective against us. Sometimes he uses temptation. That's Monday. Sometimes he uses accusation. That's Monday morning later. And then he reverts back to temptation. We have to be able to discern what is coming at us. We have to know, be alert with perseverance. When he's effective at picking us off one by one, which is what he always does, we lose our love for one another and our community because inevitably we will turn on one another. If I've got guilt and shame, I'm going to turn on you. Why? Because hurt people hurt people. And this is spiritual warfare, and we see it everywhere we go. It's relentless, but we are not without hope. No, no, no. We stand. How? We put on Christ. Fourth and final point. We'll be quick here. The gospel is the armor. Or perhaps put another way, the armor is the gospel. Whichever you like, it's both. They're interchangeable. The armor is the gospel. This is the whole thrust and the theme of Ephesians. What are the two things the devil does? He offers temptations and he hurls accusations. But the gospel obliterates both of them. The gospel wrecks temptation. The gospel comes along and says that I actually need a substitute. I am not worthy. I don't need to have a high overinflated opinion of myself. I actually need a substitute. I'm way worse than I think, and I'm certainly not as strong as I think I am or I'd like to think that I am. I cannot justify anything on my own. The gospel says that sin is a really big deal and that even all my most righteous deeds are filthy rags and rubbish before God and that Jesus had to die for my sake if I was to have any chance at redemption. The gospel reminds me that the holiness of God demands judgment for my sin and that his own son paid that price. The gospel reminds me that what I have in Christ is more than enough. I need not grasp for anything else. I need not be entitled to anything else. I have all that I need in Christ. But the gospel also wrecks accusation. The gospel comes along and says that I am way more loved than I can ever imagine, so much so that God actually sends his only son. The gospel comes along and says that while my sin is severe, it is absolutely no match for God's grace. I am as loved in this exact instant and moment as I will be in 100 million years. Do you know that? He can't possibly love you more. And so when you begin to think of God's holiness in place of his love, remember, no, he loves me infinitely right now. And he is literally incapable of growing in his love for me because it's infinite. I'm accepted fully, completely, and totally. And so the gospel obliterates accusation. That's what it means to put on Christ. We claim the gospel. That's what it means to stand. So I implore you, church, as we wrap up our study in Ephesians, to receive it and to believe it. A whole, punch, a whole bunch of people who do that are what we call the church. Now, in just a moment, we're going to have communion together where we get to celebrate, contemplate, and commemorate that this is the truest thing in the cosmos. I'm going to pray for us, and then Mike's going to lead us in communion from the third floor. So during this time of prayer, I'll encourage you and invite you to prepare your hearts and your minds. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done.
in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And Father, we do thank you that the armor of God, your armor in Christ is available to all who believe. But Father, I would be remiss if I did not invite any who are here this morning on any of our three floors or watching remotely who are not in Christ to believe because unfortunately, apart from the armor of God that is Christ himself, you have no hope. So I invite you to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and he did what he said he would do, that you would step out of death into life, and that for perhaps the first time, you would have hope as you stand against the schemes of the devil that will not stop. Father, for the rest of us, would you prepare our hearts to enjoy communion together? Will we turn our eyes upon Jesus and see that he really and truly paid it all. And so may this be a visceral experience in which we all put on Christ. We pray in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.